HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on heritageradionetwork.org. And uh, while this is being recorded live, it is February, and February, as you all know, happens to be Black History Month. Why it's only one month, you know, well, that's still to be figured out and decided, but what the heck? So it is, so we'll celebrate it, and we will pay attention to it, not that we don't pay attention all the time. And there's a very um, special, something that was was very new to me, and and um, a special story. Of course, there's been a lot of talk about this wonderful new movie, 12 Years a Slave. In fact, uh, the British um, Academy, the Film Academy, just awarded it the best overall film of the year and best director, uh, Steve McQueen as best director. The movie is about a, a free African-American, a man of African-American descent who was abducted, actually kidnapped, and and um, brought into slavery and had to endure the misery and abuses of slavery for 12 years. Now, he was one of the few who were freed, and he actually wrote um, a wonderful narrative, which was published in 1853, about his experiences. And during that time, his wife, who at first did not was not aware that he had been abducted, she, in during that time, her name was Anne Northup, he was Solomon Northup, Anne was making her mark in the culinary world. Who knew? And in fact, she was, some say, was the predecessor of soul food, but that's, that's misleading since we always think of soul food as being southern. Um, she was a northern born and a northern cook, and she was quite in demand, and we're going to find out all about her story from culinary historian and storyteller herself, Tanya Hopkins. Tanya, welcome. Hi. Now, I um, I understand that there was a um, 
an event recently that honored Ann Northrup, or Ann Northup here in New York. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, we did a historic dinner at the Morris Jamel Mansion up in Washington Heights. And, and that's in, in, up in New York, in, um, in the Bronx, in Harlem, actually. Harlem, yeah, yeah. northern Harlem. And um, it's a beautiful mansion that's restored. It's, it's the oldest mansion in Manhattan, I think built in 1765. And I originally went there for research. As When I was researching Anne's story about a year ago, um, some of the historians that had been working with the family data um, provided information in addition to Solomon's book and other research where I discovered, where I found out that she had actually cooked in Manhattan. Because as you know, they're based in Saratoga. That's where their story unfolds mm-hmm. throughout the movie, except for when he, after he is abducted. But so I went there for research originally. And in the process, seeing that there's an actual physical place and that they do events. And so that's... That was that. that, so, was you, that. so you held it. So you <laughs> held a, a nice event of, um, in honor of, of, of her history and um, and her contribution to American cuisine, right? Yeah. All it was right. A so of course, the meal. Wow. So um, did you help? You helped design this menu, also. Yes. From her mm-hmm. supposedly what we knew she cooked. Yeah, we had to come at it several different angles because while there's there are records of at least seven establishments she worked at. She worked at a range of places from taverns and coffee houses to the white tablecloth restaurants in hotels. Because um, as we know at the time, there weren't restaurants, restaurants. the way that we... Right. We're talking, we're talking um, early 1800s, like 1830s, 40s? 1820s. 1820s. She starts her culinary apprenticeship in 1825 at a place called Eagle Tavern in Sandy Hill, which is now Hudson Falls. She and Solomon marry three years later, but she starts cooking as early as 1825, and as far as we know, she cooks for at least five decades thereafter throughout the entire, uh, th- the majority of the 1800s. Wow. It's, I mean, that, as I say, this was a surprise to me. This is something, um, a new piece of information. I was not aware of her life. Um, and and I think that, well, you know, you can always say, thanks to the media, thanks to Hollywood for, you know, opening opening our eyes to, you know, to new stories. Well, actually, uh, I started to research her before the movie came out. I, wasn't I was just going to ask that. Which came first, <laughs> the movie or your research? <laughs> wasn't even aware of the movie. I was contacted by people in Saratoga who put on the annual Solomon Northup Day, Renee Moore and Edith Mastriani, and they had been doing this for 15 years, and they decided... You know, well, this year, let's learn a little bit more about Solomon's wife, who we know they referred to her as a chef. At the time, she wouldn't have been called a chef, even though technically by today's standards, because of her professional skills and she ran kitchen, she would be considered a chef. So they contacted culinary historians of New York, who contacted me, and I um, was up for the challenge. I knew that it would be challenging to research a 19th century woman, let alone a 19th century black woman even though she was free uh, in the North. And there wasn't a whole lot of data about her. Um, so I had to supplement that with general information about 19th century cookery, New York specifically. I looked at some of the menus. I was able to, to find some of the foodstuffs and menus that were on the places where, uh, at the places where she cooked and ran the kitchen and therefore would have had uh, impact on the menu. And from there... Um, along with what was the, the taste of 19th century. There's a lot of um, the spices that from the spice trade that are now readily available. Mm-hmm. 
the nutmeg and cinnamon and allspice and things that they're still expensive, but they're more accessible and much more part of the cookery, as you well know. Um, so between looking at um, historic recipes, collaborating with other food historians to make sure that there's authenticity, um, and looking at the, the menus from the places she worked at, we were able to, I was able to pull um, dishes that she almost certainly would have prepared at one of the many places she worked, including Madame Jamel's mansion mm-hmm. in the now, 1840s. It's interesting because it she is not an easy person to research, um, as you just mentioned, and, and I found out in, you know, in doing preparation for the show, you know, as Solomon Northup's wife, of course, but on her own. Um, tell me a little bit about her life personally. Uh, I, she was illiterate, right? She so it turns out, yeah. And I, so that's why we don't have any written records of her recipes. Yeah, um, if we had, she would likely go on record as the oldest African American recorded recipes. If there had been a pamphlet or a cookbook or something. Right, or something. So we're saying predating what Mrs. Fisher knew about old Southern cooking, which we know is the first written record of, of a, like a recipe book. Long considered to be the first right. African-American cookbook, but I think there's another one that... Has um, recently come out? Yeah, the Melinda Russell book, which oh, is... Oh, right, right. Melinda uh, uh, Maybe 20 years prior, because... Michael Twitty actually, yeah, talked about that. Exactly, right. exactly. Um, but Anne starts cooking in 1825, and, if, and uh, she dies um, before these two books are published. Are even or, published, right. Yeah. Um, maybe right around the time, the, the Melinda book, but... So, yeah, um, her recipes were not recorded. We all assumed Solomon was so, um, his book was so well written that, you know, I assumed initially when I first started the research that Anne also wrote and started looking for letters and journals and anything, any personal memoirs, anything that might have documented her, her cookery or her recipes or anything and and uh, found out through one of um the other historians working on the family piece that her signature for the census was an X, which is also often indica- indicating illiteracy. Absolutely, yeah. that's what. A, yeah, what a shame because through I mean a fifty-year career of cooking, and she was quite in demand as it turned as you hear from other sources, right? She was. I mean, she wasn't just you know hired help in the kitchen. She was. Um, in demand as the master chef or master, as you say, master cook because she wasn't called chef, but master cook in so many of these kitchens that certainly there would have been um, a lot of innovation on her part and recipes. Exactly. In terms of what would have been on the menu, the cookery, the style. Well, you in particular have mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, northern cooking and creolization of american cuisine in the south especially but you made mention about the fact that this is northern creolization that we can attribute to to ann northup tell me a little bit about that and what you mean by all of that so much of american cookery as it relates to black culinary influences is contextualized in the south i call it the three s's the south Slavery and um, uh, soul food. Soul food. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking along with you. You're like, oh. <laughs> right. And so the real interesting about, thing about Anne's story is she's none of those three things which you mentioned. She's northern. She's not enslaved. Their lives are touched by slavery, obviously, through her husband's story. And she's predating soul food by over a century. And 
when you look further, you look at her her heritage, her lineage. Solomon describes her as having uh, the lineage of, of three things, the red, the, the black, the white, suggesting Native American, um, European, and African, which is a, one of the classic definitions of Creole. Um, the one that we tend to use most in this country involves French and Spanish and is kind of rooted in New Orleans. Right. But in its simplest form, Creole is um, African and European, and um, the definition that I and, and some other food historians, we also factor in the Native American aspect as well, because both groups, the European settlers, the African cooks, are building on an already sophisticated um, culinary scene that the Native Americans, you know, they're building on that, you know, knowing their their culinary wisdom. So Anne has this heritage, and um, Solomon says in the book it's not clear exactly her lineage, but we do know that much. So, you know, is she Dutch, part Dutch, is she part English? Um, but the other, the other interesting thing is that most of the people, now both of them are born free, but they are the offspring of previously enslaved people, their parents. Many of the slaves in the Northeast were coming from the West Indies. So Creolization, another definition, often points to the West Indies when you talk about Creole, um, the mix of African and European, and also um, likely some of the indigenous peoples there too. So you've got a group of a slave population, unlike the South, where majority of people were coming from directly from Africa, from the West African right. ports. In in New York, and I'll speak for New York, but in I believe some of the other northeastern places, uh, for a period of time, majority of the slaves are coming from the West Indies. So there's a creolization that's already happened there, and then they come here to the northeast, where there's even more mixing of and melding of of the cultures, particularly other Africans who are who are also here, Europeans. Um, and Native American. All right. So we're talking fusion in its purest, earliest form. Right, right. original American, which, yeah. which is not really surprising, but I guess we don't think about it and talk about it in that way. We tend to, yeah. No, I mean, we, and, well, yeah, culinary historians, we certainly do, um, when we talk about uh, how these, who was cooking the food, and so who was choosing, you know, what spices to use, who was choosing how, you know, the, the meat or the vegetables would be prepared. And so there, you know, you do naturally get the, uh, the background and the education into what's, you know, who was, where did these tastes and flavors come from that, you know. One of the dishes we served was a pepper pot soup based on a 300-year-old recipe. And the interesting thing about that particular dish, in addition to associating it with this event at the mansion for Anne, George Washington, who also has a connection to the mansion, that was known to be one of his favorite stews or soups. And he was known to travel with his cooks, who were more often were, um, black men. Right. And so he actually has Hercules a... Hercules was... Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, props. Oh, yeah, was, prop- that Je- was that Jefferson's cook or was that George Washington? I'm okay, pretty oh, sure anyway. you're right. Oh, yeah. Go on. Let's don't digress. <laughs> <Two> culinary historians. <laughs> uh. Uh, and so that was a good choice. And I, I remember uh, originally when culinary historian Michael Twitty made this at the Phillipsburg Manor for their Pinkster celebration, which um, I won't go into that. That's People can Google what that is. But um, And in the planning of the menu, it was very appropriate because it is one of the most creolized North 
Eastern dishes that remains or remained. It seems to kind of have fallen off the radar again. And Campbell's Soup actually had a pepper pot. You know, it's interesting. I I have recently seen. I don't know whether it was in you know a woman's magazine or a you know one of the the um, the food journals, but um, pepper pot seems to be having a, a renaissance of sorts. So tell us about the pepper pot that you prepared for this event. Actually, um, yes, and I, I worked with the, the interesting thing is you know Anne did all this work on her own, she may maybe have had some assistance. I enlisted a small army of culinary professionals <laughs> <laughs> to pull off this four-course meal in order to do the research and the logistics and the planning and the storytelling and, and all of that. Smart, so, smart woman. <laughs> smart, yeah, and I was like, okay. So uh, Chef Heather Jones came up from, um, from South Jersey, from, from Cape May, to execute um, the menu that um, I had prepared and planned um, and researched, uh, you know, reach, uh, reaching out to a broad network of, of uh, experts. Again, authenticity is important for me. And also, you know, I like the proverb, the African proverb, it takes a village. Right. <laughs> so um, we made this soup with some, we used a beef, a beef stock, actually a veal stock, and it's it's got you know it's got some of your typical uh, things in it for flavor the onions and the garlic and scallion and and the beef stock but also one of the most important ingredients is a habanero pepper or a scotch bonnet for the heat. Um, some of the recipes that are actually documented um, talk about slicing it and taking the seeds out. But my observation, experience, and research from West African and West Indian cookery is you plop that whole thing in there and let the flavor simmer in and you you know you serve around that pepper or you can take it out to make right. sure that it doesn't land in somebody's soup. Well, and that makes so much sense in, you know, if anyone who um, has cooked with with extremely hot peppers that that makes all the sense in the world to cook it that way. You, know, you don't don't expose the seeds and the spines into the sauce and then you don't get it on your hands and touch your eye and oh know, it's painful it awful is, things like that yeah, yeah cookery is i mean as you know to this today in 2014 it's going to be a very dangerous <laughs> endeavor so imagine in the 19th century all the hot irons and coals and knives and fire and peppers yeah <laughs> very interesting and it, it sounds like such a modern day dish as well and here it was a 300 year old um you know replication which, gonna- which actually starts in West Indies and works its way to New York. We're going to talk more about uh, some of these recipes and authenticity, that word, when we come back after a break. I see you in my dreams Hold you in my dreams Someone took you out of my arms Still I feel the thrill of your charms Lips that This is I'll See You In My Dreams by Plexophonic on HeritageRadioNetwork.org They will light my way tonight I'll see you in my dreams this is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cain5.com. Out of my arms, still I feel the thrill of your charms. Lips that once were mine, tender eyes that shine. They will light my way tonight. I'll see you in my dreams. We're back on a taste of the past, and I'm. Speaking with Tanya Hopkins. Tanya is a food historian and the food griot, uh, which is her um, handle on Twitter, and it's her website. And she is the storyteller, storyteller of African-American stories of culinary history. And uh, we are, we've been talking about Anne Northup and um, being a... Uh, Free African American woman in the eighteen early eighteen hundreds, who um, really contributed so much to American cookery. And Tanya, I wanted to ask you. Um, we were talking about authenticity, and that is a very difficult word to bring up when you're talking about all of this creolization of cuisine. All these different influences in a particular cuisine how do you so how do you reckon with authenticity when it is so fused with so many other ingredients that's a great question and interestingly i am not a recipe cook (laughs) i come from a long line of cooks who who uh one of our relatives traces to jamestown um that's another story but authenticity it's on the Simplest level, it's about making sure, for example, the, the, the Indian corn uh, meal bread that we made was made with baking soda mm. and not baking powder. Baking powder hadn't, hadn't been invented, hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. yet. So just, you know, simple things like that, like wherever possible using um, an ingredient that best replicates what would have happened then. I chose to use organic food, organic chickens, and I uh, found an affordable way to do that within the budget because, not because, you know, organic was a big trend in the 1800s, but because that's what the food was. Yeah, they <laughs> wouldn't know? have been, they would not have been eating hormone-induced, in, injected uh, chickens. Right. <laughs> so, I, for me, authenticity is about really understanding the time, the place, what would have been in season in New York, what, what wouldn't have been, what would have been served or not served, um, you know, what what was what were the spices, what were the tastes and flavors, and replicating that. Even the butter, you know, butter then had a higher fat content mm-hmm. than a lot of the butter that we have today in America, at least, American butter. So sourcing a, a more... A grass-fed cow. A grass-fed, <laughs> high-fat butter right. Right. cow. So for me, that it's more about that. And then using the recipes as just a base of understanding how that particular person who wrote that particular recipe, but understanding that cooking is a source of creativity and innovation. And, you know, cooks at that time certainly didn't use all the, you know, measuring tools, and they didn't have the exact, the level of exactness. Um, And they're not using recipes, you know, also. They're they're cooking based on having watched and experienced. They're using all their senses. Well, and as recipes were originally passed down they were passed down as you say by watching by experience and by word of mouth 
um, they were not written down, not, not until quite late. Right, and particularly in the African-American experience. Mm. I mean, in, you know, overall, the imposed literacy that went on for centuries impacted northern free blacks as well as southern enslaved people. Um, you know, fortunately, many were able to write and read, but many still weren't. Um, and there may be some gender dynamics also in terms of uh, why Anne wasn't able right. to. Right, I was I was going to touch on that because also in her background, I mean, she was when she was cooking in Saratoga, she wasn't. You say she started Eagle Tavern. Well, Eagle Tavern was a was a well known eatery, and then in Sarato- the hotel she was cooking at, she was cooking for a a, um, a very wealthy clientele. So oh, yes. she was not, you know, she was cooking. She had access to very good ingredients. Oh yeah, and sophisticated palates. People who right. had traveled and been throughout Europe and France in particular, and and knew what sophisticated cookery tasted like. Um, and yeah, so she does the whole gamut, you know, to these very these um, the places where the who's who are coming for the springs, and yeah. So she's taking a lot of these northern. Um, you know, established northern dishes and adding, as you say, this this fusion of other influences that that she had in her life, probably. And, she and, and and colleagues also who were cooking. Um, th- that's the other thing that's really fascinating to me that um, I'm researching more and really enjoying uncovering is the the number the 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 um, volume of of black cooks in the north for centuries and how similar and different that cookery is in the north versus in the south um you know often it's it's an employer-employee relationship um there's the whole black caterer story that who are cooking for a very elite upscale clientele in philadelphia and new england and also in new york um Anne's not a caterer she's a cooking professional at establishments but she's still part of this group of culinary professionals who are creating dishes. Some of the dishes um, still exist on some of these uh, very high-end hotels uh, here in New York City today. Hmm. Uh, so, oh, so can you give me an example of what... what my, no, okay. Um, <laughs> but you talked about this menu that you researched and helped um, with others try to recreate for the event honoring Anne Northup. Um what the so it was a pepper pot and then you said what a a, um, a cornmeal bread or a right an Indian meal cake mm-hmm. a dandelion salad the dandelion greens were so bitter oh my goodness mm. um, we did a test recipe the, the night before thank goodness thank God we did because the um, the balsamic and the the fat from the lardon completely m- mellowed out the, the the bitterness of the greens we had on for the entree. And Madeira ham, wow, brined by yours truly. Uh, all kinds of interesting 19th century flavors: citrus and clove, and allspice and cinnamon and nutmeg, and of course the standard sugar and salt right. <laughs> for brine. Um, started with a, a piece of pork and converted it to an actual ham. Because when we think of ham today, we think smoked and salted. Right. But you know, people made their own hams then, and we made one in 2014. And uh, there was a roast chicken. With a homemade applesauce, um, New York State apples, mashed potatoes, and glazed turnips were a huge hit. Interesting. Yeah, and we used some of the, the leaves, the tops of the turnips in the pepper pot soup, which uh, actually 
became our own creation. It deviated from the recipe, surprisingly. But the standard items in there are the allspice, the pepper itself, the beef. We used oxtail. We could have used a range of, we could have used shortbread or, or whatever. And, um, yeah, so each of the recipes we had to tweak, historic recipes, as you know, are not always easy to no, not, duplicate. Not. <laughs> as you mentioned, there are no there are no measurements, but often the ingredients are very vague as well. Oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. Someone once um, wrote, and I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was James Lee, a Chinese cook, who said that, and he was told that the sign of a good cook is one who reads a recipe and then uses that a gu- uses it as a guide, but does not follow it um, completely by word. Right? You just you innovate. What do you have? What if you you're not going to run out to the store to get that pinch of whatever it is you don't have? You substitute. You you add. You use it as a guide and you improvise on that. And and obviously this is um, I'm sure that that the dishes. Unfortunately, I was not able to to be at that dinner. But wonderful things written about it and um, and about. Um, these stories about her life and and it's wonderful that this has come um, come out and are you going to do anything more with this information about Anne that you've been researching? Yeah, I will continue to build on this body of work. Um, we may be doing another event or series of events. Stay tuned okay. at the uh, at the mansion and um, yeah, she's 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 a gateway and an ambassador to um, a whole. Uh, area of American cookery that is fascinating to me, and I'm I'm learning fascinating to, to many others too. This northern cookery, um, the Creole style, the uniquely American ingredients, the European um, audience, and also some of the techniques in addition to the African cookery techniques, um, and just honoring the people who who, who cooked. Right. Um, there are so many wonderful stories out there, and they're very quiet stories because we don't, they're not, you know, ones that we see in the books and, and in the news so much. And as the food griot, the master storyteller of these tales, I look forward to a lot more information coming from you. And thank you for sharing this information with me today. Thank you. And our I'll, listeners. Thank you. I look forward to continuing to share these, yes. these stories. Tanya Hopkins, the food griot. And you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>